You're listening to How Do You Decide with Megan Stafford, a podcast that explores how the decisions we make shape us, the crossroads, the difficult choices, and how sometimes the smallest decisions can have the biggest impact. Join me as I meet everyday Aussies and find out about their lives, the decisions that changed them, and how they coped along the way. This week on the podcast... So that was the start of a, you know... Than what I would call the next, the second, my second life. Yeah, I had that one up till that day, and then I got uh, this one. That's Carmel Beresford, and hers is a name that kept coming up as I was collecting stories for the podcast. But as I drove into Yulo, where Carmel lives, to visit a different Carmel, Carmel Smith, the only thing I was pursuing was a bed to take a nap after days on the road. Of course, as they say, one Carmel leads to another. And nowhere is that truer than in Yulo, where there resides not two, but three Carmels. In one day, I got to meet all three and take that nap. Everyone was right, of course. Carmel's story is one that needs to be heard. At its heart is Carmel's son, Sam, who died in a gyrocopter accident 10 years ago in March 2011. For Carmel, his death was the moment her life split in two, before and after. In this conversation, we talk about Sam's accident the court case that followed, and the conviction that saw the man who sold Sam the gyrocopter in jail. We talk about grief, and a warning for listeners, we do discuss the suicidal thoughts that plagued Carmel for a time. We also talk about Carmel's life before the accident, her career as a teacher and then principal, and the difficult decisions that had to be made when faced with a family business that was failing. Carmel says before the accident, it was the worst thing that had happened to their family. But after losing a child, well it paled in comparison. A source of comfort for Carmel was when she got her story down on paper in her book, Unforgiving. I hope hearing Carmel's story is a source of comfort for you listening. There's certainly great heartache in Carmel's story. It is also one of vulnerability and therefore one of courage and the greatest strength of all to keep going. We start in the before, right at the beginning. All right, so I was, um, I was born in Gatton. My dad was a policeman. So, um, yeah, I was born there while he was stationed at Gatton. All my early, or my first seven or eight years were spent between Gatton and Forest Hill. And then after that, we were, um, Dad got a transfer to Petrie, which is just outside Brisbane. And um, from there, we moved um, down to the Redcliffe Peninsula, where I did all my high school years. Finished grade 12. You know, encouraged by my parents to do one of those teaching, nursing occupations, yep. professions. Yeah, so um, went off to teachers' college and uh, and became a teacher. So was that hard to decide between teaching and nursing, or what made you no, choose? No, I don't think nursing. I, no, I don't think it ever really came up for me. It don't like just, blood. No, <laughs> I think it was just going to be teaching. Yeah. yeah, but isn't it so interesting? You know, in decades past or generations past. There weren't, there wasn't that many choices. You know, there were, no. you were kind of encouraged down certain lines. I think as a female in those days, if you chose something that was a little bit alternate, it was, it was you were weird. Whereas these days, you know, you you, you kind of looked upon differently. You know, you're you're quite um, innovative these days yeah. if you choose something like that. Yeah, that's so. so true. Just how the image changes, which mm. is just perception. It is. Nothing's right. changed, but well. You know, you know, the career hasn't changed. Your yeah. choice hasn't changed. Yeah. But, but it, look, teaching suited. Well, it was good for me because I came out here and 
you know, being I, I being able to teach here was great because what other what other profession really would I have been able to do in this town? You know, yeah, that's exactly right. So. And like teachers and nurses have kept regional and rural Australia, yeah. Australian towns populated. But even the teachers that you know, teachers who who came to Kunnamulla, married locally, stayed. You know, that's the main part. Staying, ra- right? Staying, raise their children. You know, so that's right. So there you go. Was Yulo your first placement out of teachers' college? Or... Kunnamulla was. Oh, Kunnamulla was. But see, I met my husband. He was at school too down where I was. It, he was at the boys' sort of school. I was at the girls' school. So we met at school, and then I can we continued. You know, keeping in touch, relationships, broke off, on again, off again, through those years of college. And then, um, yeah, then I wanted to come out here. See, I wanted to come to Kanamala. So I was just explaining the other day, we were a group of, say, 300 graduates. So we were all put in this big auditorium and they virtually went through, the, named everybody and said where you were going to. And if your name came up and you got like a desirable area like the Sunshine Coast or the Gold Coast, you know, you'd get all these oohs, you know. <laughs> and I can remember when my name came up and it was kind of, it was Kunamala, everyone went, Oh <laughs> What? Who did she rub up the wrong way, you know? <laughs> but you had wanted to come. Yeah, I did. I asked for it. And why was that? Because Mick was living out here. Oh right. So he was is he uh, Kanamala boy. Yeah, yeah. He's a Kanamala fella. Yeah, he is. Yeah, born in Kanamala at the Kanamala Hospital. <laughs> wow. So virtually hasn't has never left left the place. I suppose that's yeah. amazing. Yeah. And uh, you obviously had been out here before visiting yeah. and everything. Yeah. So you came knew. for holidays. Yeah. And I loved it. I really did. Yeah. You know, I, I just loved the openness and and yeah, I loved the space and you know. Even my mother at 90, she's 90 this next month, and she says to me, she'll still say to me, I don't know how you ended up out there. <laughs> but, I mean, it was also great because were your family still down around Redcliffe? Or, mm. So, yeah, you know, in being able to, I mean, it's still a yeah. long drive, mm. um, but it's achievable. Yeah. You know, it was hard times. So, you know, it was we'd go down there and it'd be really, it'd be really sad pulling yourself away again, you know, but... Um, Anyway, yeah, that, mum and dad always lived from when we moved to Redcliffe. Mum's still in that area. She hasn't gone more than – she's in a retirement now, but she hasn't gone more than a K away from the house they first built there, you know. So. Wow. Uh, you know, yeah. That was, that was tough. You know, it was tough, I think, um, going to visit and then having to leave, you know, and same with the kids, bringing the kids away and, you know. Is that more because you didn't know when you would get to see them again or just... Uh, I think it was just, um, yeah, just that, that split. And the hard part was um, for us when, because I taught too, my only time was school holidays. Mm. And when my pair that were at boarding school, all they wanted to do was come home in the school holidays. And all I wanted to do was kind of go away and visit, you know, so... That was pretty tough because That's um, so true. They they didn't want to go. They didn't want to go down there. We lived down there. We're there all the time, you know. So, and um, and I didn't want to. I wanted to go down, but I wanted to be here because they were here, you know. So yeah, and also as teacher and then principal, 
uh, of the school, you're so entrenched in the community as well. So I can imagine you'd want to be just to switch off mm. and go yeah, home. Go home. Mm. Yeah. Mm. That's right. Yeah. Loved so, school. Loved holidays. Loved holidays. Yeah. <laughs> Who doesn't? Who doesn't? Um, but yeah, so you're out at Kanamala. Yeah. Were you living with Mick at that stage? Like, did you move straight in together? Or? Yeah, we, well, we, we were married that first, um, that first January holiday. So he, we lived in a little cottage. Uh, he's got, his family have got another place between here and Kanamala. And we lived in a little cottage there, which meant I could go east back into Kanamala every day mm-hmm. to go to work. He came this way and went to work at his parents' place out here. So then when, was that Farnham? Yes. So when did you move out? Permanently to Farnham? Farnham? Um, Well, see, well, after a few years in Kanamala, I stopped teaching to have Pat. He was born in 1981. So he came along and then um, at the time we were in a, it was a pretty awful drought here and I was missing my family and things were tough at his parents' place pay-wise so I talked, I talked Mick into going back to live in Brisbane. Yeah. So we did that for um, until nine. We did that in eight, 1982, but we came back permanently in 1985. What did you feel about that choice to go back to Brisbane? Oh, uh, he 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 conned me in this. <laughs> no, but he said to me, you know, oh, there's no better place to bring up kids than out there. They'll love it, you know. Yeah. Real. A real con job, you know. Yeah. Oh, they'll love the wide open spaces. Oh, when I was growing up, yeah. So yeah. I came back. Came back. Yep. Yeah. But I didn't. I didn't mind. It wasn't. I wasn't. Um, it wasn't anything forced or anything. I, I was looking forward to it. So. Absolutely. But I'm sure that there's like pros and cons that were weighed up on both sides. And, yeah. And uh, I think my parents were sad because we'd been living down there kind of for three years, and then we were packing up and going and going again. again. Yeah. yeah, especially with grandkids as well. Mm, mm, that's yeah. right. Well, Pat was four, going on five when we came back, and Lauren was only kind of two. So, yeah, yeah. I was pulling them away, I suppose. Yeah. We're, oh, my parents were out here still, I guess. So. Yeah, they, that's why we came back. They were they were on the verge of going. They were finished and they were leaving. So we were we were returning to... Take uh, over. Yeah. yeah. Management. Mm, yeah. Mm. With his... Um, and, and Mick's brothers were still were around too. So, yeah, it was time for the next generation, I guess, yeah. for them to have a go. Yeah, That's the thing about properties, isn't it? Living on the land is uh, so much, so many decisions are made. They're, they're family decisions, Yeah, which can be tough. But we were coming back too. Um, we were kind of bringing three families back onto one place. There wasn't really the income for... For, for us all to survive so so the we we actually formed a shearing team wow okay <laughs> tell me more about that as a family and we had another fa- there was another family here who were a bit the same um not a lot of money at the time let's see now how did it go eric mick's older brother was a shearer mick did the pressing the wool pressing his younger brother was a rouseabout <laughs> i did the cooking I went cooking with the two with the kids. They were there. Um, Eric's wife Kate was a rouseabout. Um, our other family that we sort of conned into doing the same thing. Three of their fellows could shear, 
and another guy in the area was pretty keen and he was the classer. Wow. So between us, we had um, four shearers, we had a presser, we had um, two rouseabouts, we had the cook, um, and we had the classer. That's mm. amazing. Mm. How long did you do that? Oh, I don't know. Felt like <laughs> felt like a while. Yeah, a couple of I. We all went together for a couple of years, I suppose, and then we women kind of gradually got could stay home. I had we started having to do school. It was a of bit course. harder. Yeah, tricky. Yeah, so that's when Kate and I kind of stayed home and tried to not run things but keep things at home going while the men packed up every Sunday and went off shearing. Well, I, I'm guessing at the same time, the whole time the shearing team would have been going, the two families would have been go, having their properties being run as, as well. Yes. So yep. just yep. fitting that all so, in. Yeah, so it was coming home, the men it was coming home Friday afternoon virtually jumping in Saturdays and Sundays, doing what needed to be done as quickly as you could do it so that you could pack up and go again on, wow. on Sunday. And that allowed you guys to all then... Yep. We all pulled an income and we could all... That's how we kind of lived because the properties didn't really have enough money to pay wages and run. Yeah. yeah. So we could run them, but we all had to find a way to eat. Yeah. yeah. I just think it's so amazing but I think that people resist a lot of times diversifying maybe or or just any change mm. but um, it's it can be so necessary well it was it was a necessity it was it was um, yeah so and, and I had the two I was probably the only one that had little kids yeah they'd trail along behind us and sometimes they'd be with me in the cookhouse and sometimes they'd be over in the shearing shed well I mean Mick was right great way to bring up kids <laughs> uh, yeah. and I feel like that is also a great testament to your relationship with your family members that you're all on this team yep. working day in day out all week I think it was because it it was for a common purpose yeah yeah you know when you've got that commonality that common purpose it it's yeah you can you do it someone wants to go one way someone wants to go another. Yeah. you've got it yeah that's right there's there's got to be there's a fair bit of um negotiation goes on so did all three families end up settling at Farnham permanently? Yeah, for a little while because um, um, it got trickier. Eric was always married to Kate. I was always married to Mick. It got trickier when, you know, you're bringing a third family in because you're looking for where where you can all live and survive. And I guess that was the time we went down that road of looking for a, for a, second, for a second property. Yeah. yeah. And where did you... Um, well, we, um, we probably knew we couldn't do it on our own. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we got together with our other family that where Mick and I had lived, um, when we first got married at them and we, and we formed a partnership and yeah, we bought a, bought another place. I think that's in my so book, fantastic. I think in my book, in my book, I refer to it as we started empire building. And, um, is that partnership still going now? No, because it no. all, it, it was not. It was not successful. We bought in um, 1988 um, and, and the story is that um, we thought we'd done all our figures. You know, we, we both properties were owned, so we had a fair bit of um, collateral there um, and we bought the third place. And um, as it happened, I, I 
tell people in my book, I suppose I talk about it too, is being, and Sam was born in 1989. Yeah. So it was kind of like we, we, we were hit with all these whammies, you know. Um, we struck drought. We struck um, the floor price for wool was taken away. Mm. So the, the figures that we'd done for our income were no longer there and nobody was able to predict that that was going to happen. And, of course, we, we struck issues with our 18% interest rate. Of course. And, not, and, and of course, as we, um, as we probably struggled more and more with that, um, I guess the bank saw us as a risk so we had quite a large risk margin mm. put onto the top of our initial 18%. At some stages, we were up to 22% in interest rate. Gosh. And when you got, an, when you got a loan of $1.4 million, you worked that out. So before we could even live or even operate, you know, we were paying somewhere near $140,000 and $150,000 a year in interest. That's yeah. insane. I guess we just got deeper and deeper and deeper into trouble, you know. And so did you, so Sam's born, this is all happening, yeah. just so much. And again, too, I've got a little boy, so I'm not working. Mick's away, he's trying, he's keep, he kept the shearing team going, you know, on his own for a while with another, with Derry, with another, with his other mate. We, we had, by then we had quite a bit of time at home. I was home most of the week. He was working. Yeah, you know, so. Yeah, that's just so tough too when you just, everyone's just trying to keep the family going mm, mm. and then you're not even getting to spend time as a family either. No, no, it's, it was. And, um, yeah, and yeah, so, yeah, and, and I had the kid by then. I think by then I had the two in and here at school. So, you know, there was the in and out to school. And So what happened next? What happened next? So we tried to hang in for a while, a long time, probably, you know, but by, yeah, uh, the bank just pulled us, pulled us back. And initially they gave us, by this time our, you know, our $1.4 million debt had blown out to 1.6. Yeah. Because we were, you know, we kept struggling. And they gave us, initially they gave us 30 days to pay $1.6 million dollars. We had to pull someone in who could deal with that kind of operation, you know. So, what do you mean by that? Pull someone um, in? Just an outsider who could sit down with us and try to sort, you know, sort out a, an arrangement. Yeah, that yeah. would be suitable for the bank and suitable to us. Once we'd engaged that person, that I can't remember the name of the firm, but once we'd engaged them, um, then the bank certainly gave us a lot more time. And so were you able to come to an agreement or did you sell that third property or? Yeah, well, what we did was um, after lots of negotiation, every avenue was looked at, you know, selling home properties because they were probably a little bit more desirable than the third one we bought. Yeah. But none of us, our other family didn't want to sell their home property. No. We didn't want to sell our home property. Yeah. So that then it came down to, well, we the third one had to be sold, you know. So we came to, we, we came to an agreement where uh, one of the other partners bought that third property and they had a debt with the bank and then we negotiated, we each other two each negotiated our own debt with the bank in order to meet the $1.6 million. You know? Yeah. 
So it was it was pretty tense yeah. and it was pretty awful. And um, if you'd have asked me before Sam died, what was the worst period of your time? I would have said that was because yeah. it was a time. It just it near it did it. It we were we were at breaking point. Thank you so much for sharing that because I just think it it's so. I think a lot of people would struggle to share their struggles. I think it, it's easy to talk about it because I've printed it, yeah. you know, so it's in print. So it's I, you in know, yeah, your book. Yeah, yeah, it's in my book, so it's no. But I, I think what what angered us too at the time was that, as I said, over the 10... We bought Gamaran in 1988 and we obviously sold it about 1998. So in that 10 years, we paid the bank close to $150,000 a year. So for 10 years, if you add that up, that's $1.5 million. Yeah. And that was an interest only. And on the day of settlement, we still paid them $1.6 million. So for a 10-year tenure, we paid the bank $3.1 million yeah. and we walked away with nothing. We yeah. didn't even have, we didn't have the property anymore yeah. that we set out to buy, you know. We just, and, and of course, we, we had a, a huge debt to bring home and that was going to impact on our, on our um, income for the next 18 years. Yeah, so, and even it didn't matter in the next 18 years, it didn't matter how dry it was or how low your stock numbers were, you still had to meet that payment. Payment. Every decision you make has to be with yep. that in mind. No matter how much you had in the bank every month, the bank just drew that amount out, you know? Yeah. And it didn't matter. It didn't matter how, you know, how um, bad things were. You still had to meet that, that repayment. You know? That's right. Just a confluence yeah. of events that led to that too, you know. And, it, yeah, I, that's what I always think. You know, I, it was, it would have been, you know, if Sam hadn't died and the, the terrible, but it would have probably been our most horrendous, horrendous time. And I talk, I talk about it in the book too because... As you can imagine, you know, not only did it break us financially, but even in our own family, it caused it was friction because everybody kind of had ideas on on how things should have finished up. Yeah. Did you gain any wisdom from that in terms of what you would be able to share with someone else if they were going through that? Or um, I don't. I I'm. It certainly. It was. It's for me. It's made me. Um, I, I'm the conservative one in this in this family. Yeah. You know, I'm the one that always wants to, you know, put the put the foot on the neck and <laughs> say stop. Yeah. But you know, but you know, Mick will still go out there and and be risky. Not not to the same extent as that. But you know, he will still he will still have. Um, um, after we got the good rain last year, and the year before we'd had. We had sold all our stock because we just couldn't hold them any longer. So we had no stock and we had rain. And he said, you know, we've got to get some stock to put on this grass. And, of course, I don't know whether you realise, but the prices just went through yeah. the roof. Yep. And I'm, I'm saying, no, 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 you know, yeah, prices yeah. are too high. And he's saying, well, if we don't buy now, they're only going to get higher, you know. So 
he's kind of he can still see. Yeah. Whereas I just wanted to go, no, no. stop. Yeah. <laughs> let's just watch the grass. Yeah. Or well, let's get a jismin in. Yeah. And then we're just that's what even I said. Worry. Yeah, Someone else. Can, I did. Yeah. I said yeah. let's just take a jismin. Yeah. Let them pay us five thousand dollars a month. You know, and he's saying. Oh, if we have our own cattle, we can make more than that. And I'm saying, yeah, but you know, yeah. so I, I'm, I, I'm, I have stepped away from the business a lot. So I'm not, I'm not a decision maker anymore. But yeah, I'm, I'm, it, it, it made, I, I'm just not that risky kind of person. He can still be, but <laughs> I think it's good to have both sides, you know, to be running on yeah. both, and and you have to view both because. You're in the industry, in an industry which relies on the weather, which yeah. no one no one knows no, what's coming. So even last month when it was starting to get a bit, get a bit dry, and I'm saying to him, "Oh, it hasn't rained. You know, you're going to have to think about what you're going to sell." And he's saying to me, "Oh, but it's going to rain in March." You know? Yeah, <laughs> I love his positivity, though. Oh. I mean, you got to, you know. Oh yeah. That, do you think that that? Um, You've got a young family as well while this is all happening. Oh, 98, I guess. Yep. You've got the youngest would be nine. Yep. And did you come into town then or was that when you went to Farnham? Okay, well, I probably, what did I do? Um, Because of our situation um, in about 1993, Sam was only, he was four, I got a job at the convent in Kanamala because we just needed the income. Yep. You know. So, and that was tough again too because, and he was still shearing then actually. We we put a, a, a lovely lady, she came out of Kanamala, an older lady, and she used to come out on Monday morning and she'd just sort of be at the, be around the house. She didn't have to do too much of it. She'd be around the house and then um, she'd go home back to Kanamala on Fridays. Um, so, so he, because Mick was still shearing and I was teaching. So yeah. we needed to have somebody out there and um yeah so we were both virtually working off farm because yeah we needed to and of course i had a pat was at that stage then of starting boarding school so you know i needed to find some money to pay from school fees yeah Yeah, so i we went lauren and sam and i went into kanamala and we lived in there from monday to friday and then we'd come home on the weekend and were they at at this convent as well yeah yeah when was the first time you taught one of your children? I never had Sam at all because I only taught, I taught in there for 93, 94 and 95. I did three years in there. And then Sam was struggling in there because um, he, he just couldn't cope. He wasn't a student for a start and he was having issues, learning issues, yeah. learning problems. So I took leave and came home and put him in this little school out here. Put him into Yulo, you know, this little country school. Yeah. Because in Kanamala, he was in a class of 30 and he just found it too too daunting, too many. So back we came to Yulo. And I didn't work again um, until about 1997. So I had a, had a time off too. Yeah. And then this principal's position came up here and I, I tried for it and got it. I had tried for it in 93 and I missed out. I wasn't the successful applicant, so... That's why I went to Kanamala because I had to get, I had to work. I, I don't think there was a morning that I woke up when I was teaching in Yulay that I didn't want to go to work. That's amazing. What do you think was the the feel of that? 
Oh, I just I just liked the atmosphere. I suppose it was so di- not different, but in Kanamala, in Kanamala, when you taught at the convent school, there wasn't a whole lot of money, so you weren't just the teacher. But on Friday afternoon, before you could go, you had to clean your classroom. You had to be the cleaner in your only your classroom. You didn't have to do it, but you had to clean your classroom. Um, I had a composite. I think I must have had a composite three four in there, and I got. I think if I was lucky, I got a half an hour of teacher aid time a day. So I came to Yulo and I had I had a cleaner. <laughs> I had a teacher aid virtually, you know, full time. Yeah. So you can imagine it was it was a dream. It yeah. Was <laughs> yeah. And also I think really good school kids. And, and you would have got to know all the kids. Oh, good kids. Yeah. You know, just good good bush kids. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So um, yeah, I, I, it was, it was great. I, why would I? What did I have to complain about? And I guess as well, it also afforded you to be back with Mick home. as well, be home. Yeah, we could, t- we could be yeah. home. Yeah, and and kept Sam here at school too, you know. So, but he still struggled out here. I never taught Sam because at the time they had two teachers here, so one teacher kind of could have years one to three, and the other teacher had years four to seven. Well, when we first came back here, I think Sam was in grade three and I wasn't teaching. And I think we repeated him in grade three um, because we didn't really think he was ready to go up to the other end with the big kids. So that was probably the two years when I wasn't teaching. And then, of course, by that time, um, when I stepped back into teaching, I took the little kids. I took the ones to threes. So he'd moved up into the four to four seven. seven. So yeah. I never really, I never really taught him as such. But but you were principal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so if he got in trouble, you yeah, did call as mum um, and principal, yes. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but we never. I, I just tell you, it was funny. We had we used to go to Thargaminda for a small schools camp, and there was a teacher out there from Aramanga, lovely lady, and we had a lot to do with each other, being small schools. And we were going out, I was going out, Sam was probably in grade seven by this time, and um, we were out there at camp, and she had her boy at her school too, in Aramanga. And um, she, I said to her when we were, got to Aramanga, I said, um, now Sam's here at camp with me. She said, oh, radio. I said, we're here for four days or something. See if you can tell which one is my son, see, because there was a hundred kids there. Yeah, this yeah, is yeah. where all, all schools come yeah, in. Oh, yeah. See if you can tell who's my son, you know. She said, oh, radio, you know. Now, we just never, not that we didn't have anything to do with each other, but, you know, I was given a group of kids, which wasn't he wasn't in, and he was in his own groups, you know. So we never really had to have anything to do with each other, and I did my job, and he was... And at the end of the four days, she said to me, I've been trying, she said, but I still can't work out which one's Sam, you know, because we just, he, we did, it's not because we didn't, you know, we didn't like each other or anything, but we just never had a need to, um, and he never came to me and went, you know, oh, mum, 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 or, yeah. you know, and I never went to him and went, oh, Sam, you know, yeah. so we didn't, um, yeah, she said she couldn't, she couldn't work out which one he was, you know. Do you think that, did you ever notice with that, like being one to three and then four to seven, I guess a lot of times you'd have siblings in the same yep. class. Yep. Did that ever cause issues or not didn't, really? No, well, it didn't seem to here. I can't, don't think so. And some of those kids, well, a lot of those kids, you know, I, I sort of started in grade one 
and saw them off at the end of grade seven. It was lovely. And, and the good thing too is if we got to the end of a year and, and we might have been using a certain textbook or a book or something, if that kind of, if we hadn't got it, if it wasn't finished or whatever, because, you know, we just kept it and picked it up again and started the following year, you know. It was a good rolling kind of education. If we hadn't quite covered the work, well, we made sure we covered it before they... Do you, well, how do you feel about education today? Yeah. Are, you, are you teaching now? No, no, yeah, no yeah. I, haven't, I haven't for a long time, so, you know, I've been out of it. But I've got grandkids up here um, and um, they're, they're doing really well. Yeah. I, I, you know, I have an, a high level of admiration for small schools, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. It's I I loved I love the small school environment and you know the flexibility of having the time or knowing the kid and knowing yeah. that you've got that ability to get them where they need to get yeah. to rather than sorry you didn't make it so there is that hard and fast which in a in a bigger school environment yeah. you couldn't and I know I had a her family um, come to me and it was, it was a sad case um, they'd been supposedly homeschooled for. A lot of years for three years and they had really not been able to do too much um, so I had the boy he he was supposed to be in grade four or three or something when we got him started he could he was hardly you know literate literate yeah but the good part about a small school too is like he could be in grade four but we could start him way 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 back and he didn't feel in any way, he, he wasn't made to feel any less because he was doing year one work at all, you know. But the important thing was we couldn't just say, well, you know, you're in grade four, here's grade four, because he, he just couldn't do it, you know. No. So we were able to get him started, even though it was slow. And that's, that's one of the great things about small schools too you know if, if children weren't and Sam was a good case like that he he couldn't he wasn't a he could not do his year level work so we just adapted all the all the work for for him and for others like him you know and we had some really good kids we had yeah. some bright kids you know? yeah. so it's it was sounding to me like it would be like a lot more work but then it's not at the same time because no. you're just yeah. Getting, giving kids what they need. Yeah, we're just adapting it yeah. for them, not yeah. the other way around. I loved it. I just that's what I mean. I couldn't. I you know most. There was rarely a day that I didn't want to go here. You know, come here. That's just so fantastic. I hope that everyone gets to have like that. <laughs> well, I can remember coming to school one day and I was sick. I was I was crook and I shouldn't have come. But it was one of those days where my other teacher was off on PD. She was on, and so. I had to come because, you know, you can't have it operate. But I was so sick. But I had really good teacher aides. And I can remember the the, par- the mums or whatever coming that morning and I said, oh, I'm, I'm not very well and I'll just have to, i just got to be here. And and before they left their kids that day, they're, almost, they're there telling them now, you behave today because Mrs. <laughs> Mrs. Beresford's not very well. And, you know, she... <laughs> And I and I spent I think I spent most of that day down on a beanbag in the back of the classroom, you know. <laughs> and my teacher aides are kind of saying, you know, now don't don't disturb Mrs. Beresford. If you want to know something, you come and see us, you know. So I, I was just a figurehead there to make sure <laughs> so, that the school could stay so open, open for the day. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's you know, and, and they were kids and parents were really good. So how long were you at Eulo then? Sam had 
the accident in 2011. That was in the March of 2011. I tried to go back to work after the Easter. Didn't do very, didn't do a very good job. Um, so I took the rest of that year off um, and started again in 2012. Lasted term one. Didn't. Just wasn't the same. That that morning feeling of wanting to be there just was gone. gone. So I had the rest of 2012 off, and then I by that time I wasn't pressured, but I was being asked what I intended to do. Mm. Um, because obviously my position had to be uh, replaced, and so I, I didn't return to work. Yeah, still twenty five years, really. Well, on less. and off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually I went back as a teacher aide a couple of years later, which was, but oh, I just I wanted to go back, but I didn't want the responsibility. Yeah. So I picked up the teacher aide, which was a bit dumb, really, because it just wasn't. You know, there's something about. Being in charge, I think, and making decisions, and yeah, compared to not being that person yeah. and not making those decisions, so I wasn't I wasn't a very good teacher aide. <laughs> I totally understand to have the autonomy and be able to yeah be in control and yeah yeah, yeah. I I did I you know, and I suppose I mean I don't think of myself as a control freak, but I think I did like control. Oh. You're human. We all love control. And if someone tells you that, oh, no, I don't care about it, liar. Oh, good. Because um, Mick will even tell me now that I'm still, you know, trying to control everything. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, Mick, you love it. You married it. <laughs> don't even pretend. Yeah. Well, I guess that brings us like to, so 2011. 2011. What day in March? We must have just, have Ninth? we just passed? No, no. Oh. He, well, the 9th was the day of the accident, accident. and then he lived for eight days so um it was a just and i talk about this in the book so it's a, not easy but i can talk about it but it was just a school day yeah. you know we'd all come we were all doing our jobs you know and it was just it was just a disaster yeah yeah so how far away was the accident happened at farnham yeah so is that 70 kilometers out of town no no, no. from here yeah from no off. no not from here only um it's it's about 20. 20 kilometres yeah. from Because I drove it every day to yeah. work. I, you know, Krista was Krista was Sam's girlfriend at the time and she was living with us at Farnham and, um, yeah, we were a great foursome, you know, a bit of an awesome foursome. And she was the cleaner at school and so she'd come into school for her job and I'd left to come in for my job, leaving the men and, uh, yeah, it was just it was just a day. The gyro that he'd picked up from Roma the day before, it was there and he was assembling the the um, rotor blades because they have to be removed for travel and they were putting them back on and everything, everything. I passed him as I was coming to work and he was busy and I waved and smiled and yeah. So, um, and Mick was with him at the time, but Mick left because he hadn't long had a knee off and it was starting to ache just being on his feet. And he left Sam, not just because everything seemed right. And for some reason, oh, well, I suppose Sam, he just thought he'd put his hand in the cockpit and turn on the key and it was, it just, yeah, it went to 5,800 revs like that and uh, he was in the firing line. Yeah. So. so that was a dramatic, terrible, terrible phone call because I'm at school and everything's just normal, you know, kids are there and 
phone rings and I just pick it up, ready to go, you know, hello, Yulo State School, Carmel speaking, you know, and this voice on the other end is just screaming at me, you know, and I oh, just, it was just horrendous. So that was the start of a, you know, the, uh, what I would call the next, the second, my second life. You know, I had that one up till that day and then I've got uh, this one. This, it was terrible. He, were, he was certainly in a bad, I, I was in denial, I think. Maybe mums are, but um, he was in a bad way. You, know. you and Mick swap spots. You were being positive for once. Mm, you know, you I know. was. Yeah. I, I mean, I just thought he got a bad gash to his head and, you know, and I just thought, he, oh, he'll be fine. The emergency services here, yeah. you know, so obviously Mick would have, uh, he yeah. must have heard that something's gone on and mm. then he's gone and, and yeah. found Sam and, and yeah. so then... Well, see, no mobile. And yeah. I mean, the, the hangar was about, it's about 200 metres from the house. So he's had to, he was just back at the back door when he heard this almighty noise. So he literally had just left. Yeah. So he kind of raced back to where Sam was, saw how bad he was, but then had to leave him because he knew, like he had to get back to the house again Mm -hmm. to make all these phone calls, you know. So, um, yeah, so he rang me at school. Um, and then I, he said to me, you, you've got to ring, you've got to ring the, you've got to ring the, cause I've got to get back, you know? So of course I'm ringing triple O and, um, they're asking me what's happened and I, I don't know, you know, and I'm being no help. Um, I'm just saying to them, you know, get someone out there. <laughs> um, so, and I, Kate, my sister-in-law, um, um, she, from the shearing team. Yeah. yeah. From, she was, she had a lot to do with care of animals you know so she she was at school she grabbed that school's first aid kit and headed off and um, then Krista and I jumped in our car in my car and headed back and um, yeah so Kate was on the job and she was very good she she was she was with Mick as we pulled up and I had to re-ring the 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 triple O number again to tell them what I knew so that was Kate was good she rattled off his injuries in a pretty concise way you know so so then I you know they stayed with Sam I had to go to the house you know so and then like our local policeman at the time Dave he was really good because he'd been in the army and um, part of army training is is um, first aid and very intense very yeah very very bad injuries you know and he, as soon as he got out there, he kind of recognised a lot of Sam's injuries, and um, and I, I I credit him with saving Sam that day, yeah, because wow. he just knew what to what, what to, to do. do. Um, and and the probably the hardest part was that um, our strip, our airstrip, wasn't in good enough condition to land the flying doctor plane on site, so Sam had to be ambulanced back to Yulo. And that was a long trip. Such a long For 18 kilometres, it took yeah. them an hour and something. Because they just had to travel so slow. Yeah. Like, I mean, the closest ambulance. It's Kanamala. So it's that Kanamala. was an hour. So, but had they, oh, they had to. They were on site. They'd they come. They had come. Yeah. Yep. And they'd then, come. but RFDS is based at Charleville. Yeah. Yeah. So what, the ambulance came to Yulo, um, and they were in communication with the, the RFDS yep. plane, telling them. It landed in Yulo and then it waited until they brought him in here. Yeah. 
So and then it was about, oh, it would have been two or three hours here, stabilising him well enough to get him on the plane. And they flew out about two o'clock. So from an accident that happened at half past eight, yeah, he was out at two. Yeah. And then still had to fly all the way to Brisbane. Mm, yeah, got yeah. there about, they, um, they had to go via Roma to, because he was going to need a transfusion and that was the place they were going to, and they needed to refuel, so they picked Roma because they could do both there. Yeah. And then on to Brisbane from there. Yeah. Were you able to, you went in the plane? No, no? we weren't. No. I'm not sure why. I should probably find out that. I'm not sure. They did have a, quite a load of personnel that day. Yeah. Um, but none of them, because we just assumed one of us would go, either Krista or me or Mick or whatever. But we were told no. And I guess later on you kind of wonder whether, I did, I wondered whether they thought he wouldn't survive, you know, that he wouldn't get to Brisbane alive, you know. And so it was best if no one be on the on the plane. Did someone drive you to Brisbane? No, Mick and Krista left straight away. They left and I stayed. I wanted to, because I, I, I was in this denial. Yeah. I just thought, he'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah, he'll be fine. I'll just go back to work. I'll, I'll organise some days, you know, to go, to have, but I'll go back and I'll do a day tomorrow and get tidied up and do this and do that. And I, I left on the Sunday. I didn't go till the Sunday. That was the Wednesday. I went to work Thursday and Friday, and then I um, I got down there Sunday night. What were so, those days like? Pretty awful. Yeah. Because yeah, I, lots of, lots of people wanted to help, but I, I just wanted to be on my own. Yeah. And that you should never, don't ever do that. <laughs> don't let yourself be on your own. No. 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 Um, yeah, it was pretty traumatic. Especially when you're relying on phone calls to know what's what's happening. You know, the first phone call I got was from the doctor who was on the plane and she said, we've arrived, she just rang and said, we've arrived in Brisbane. She said, um, Sam is alive and we've taken him to the PA hospital. And I just thought, why are you telling me he's alive? You know, sort of. Anyway, she said, the next phone call you'll get, she said, they're going to take him into surgery now and um, for his head injury. Um, she said the next um, phone call you'll get is from the neurologist, from the neurosurgeon, sorry, the neurosurgeon. So that was a wait for hours and hours. And that was the phone call where she told me, she said to me that um, he would probably be blind. And that was, I said to her, is that the worst case scenario? And she said, as far as we could tell, and I said, well, what's best case scenario? And she said, oh, probably peripheral blindness on one side. And I thought, oh, that's not so bad, you know. That's like holding your hand up and not seeing. Um, but the blindness was just horrendous. Because when you've got someone like Sam and you just think, well, being blind means he can't live. Mm. And just all of those conversations you think yeah. that are, you know, and you're hundreds of kilometres away mm. and just Relying. obviously and obviously you're in mum mode like everything's mm. fine I'm good yep. can I how can I help others you mm. know like everyone wants to help you but you're like no 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 it's all going to be yep. fine yep I was just I was just and and a few years earlier Pat had had a bad motorbike accident and when we got him into Cunnamulla and looked at him he looked terrible you know he was all 
It was swollen. He reckoned he thought his leg was broken. You know, his eye was all closed. His cheek was all up. And that's, and then he, they flew him out and, um, I drove down to him probably the next day and got to the hospital probably a good 24, 36 hours after he had his, and I was looking, and I and he's sort of sitting up in bed and the swelling sort of a bit of it's gone and his eye was open and his leg was fine. And so it was like, ah, oh, there you go, you know. So I, that was the kind of, that's what I carried through to Sam, you know. Okay, he's got this injury, he'll get down there, they'll put a big bandage around his head, you know, and they'll, they'll work on his shoulder and they'll fix that up. And when I get there, he'll be sitting up in bed and he'll go, you know, hi, mum, you know. Yeah. It wasn't wasn't like that at all. No. no, you know. And he'd been sedated the whole time, yeah, hadn't he? He never so he never, no. he never re- he never re- they put him in an induced coma, but he never regained consciousness. So, you know. Um but he fought hard, but too many as the doctor said to us, each one of his injuries would have been considered critical and he had about four, you know, so and it was it was one of those things where where they you know, the medication was phenomenal. And when they had to adjust medication for one injury, it had an impact on something else, you know. So amazing people in those places, yeah. just amazing. And I also think eight days is actually a really long time. It must have been the most intense week of your life. Well, Monday he seemed to be really quite good. They were kind of getting very um, upbeat, um, but uh, it it kind of went downhill from there, you know. Um, and then on the Thursday morning, I think it was Thursday, they tried to tell me that he, he was probably, after a lot of issues, he was probably back where he was on Monday, but he didn't look at all to me on Thursday like he did on Monday, you know. So, And that was the night that he died. I, I was really good at... Oh, well, I'll say I was quite good at in the first couple of weeks, I kind of, um, it was like, it was an out of body experience, I suppose, you know, um, lots of phone calls, lots of messages, you know, and, uh, I think for me, once I found out about, um, the condition of the gyrocopter, that was it, it kind of, um, I, I think I thought of it as an accident that Sam had done something a bit silly and this was the result, you know. But I think when I found out kind of more about the gyrocopter and then when I started to tell myself that none of this was Sam's fault, that's when I got really, my whole thing just changed, you know, that kind of that he died for, when it, you know, for no reason at all and, yeah, you know. Can you explain about that with the condition of the chiropractor? Uh, well, he he bought it from his instructor, so he had um, he had gone and had instructions in flying, learning to fly, um, and he had a small chiropractor, a, a one seater. Anyway, he went on this job where his instructor was also there with his gyro. So they were two gyros. They call it piggybacking. They mm-hmm. both work. And um, I just felt after that he came home kind of with this, he came home with this, uh, I'd, like a, I'd like a two-seater, uh, you know. Um, and um, 
So everything was then geared towards him getting a two-seater. You know, he says to me, you know, I can I can carry a port in my other seat. Or his big thing to me was when we live at because we lived at Farnham. When we have floods, I was we were cut off, and so there was a quite a quite an ordeal getting to school. If we if I was out there and had to get to school, it was drive so far walk, get in a boat, walk, get the next vehicle, you know. So he said to me this day when he was all excited about this second, this guy with two seats, and he said, and you know, Mum, I'll be, you'll be able, I'll be able to take you to school, you know. I'll be able to take you up over the water and we won't have all this, you know. So he was, he was pretty excited about that, but. It was found later, and he he came to me in the January, and he says to because he he said to me he he'd saved up for this machine, and he said to me, "Can you help me do a twenty five thousand dollar transfer?" And I said, "Oh, what's what's that for?" And he said, "This is for the gyro," and I said, "Hmm." I said, "When are you getting it?" He said, "Oh, not till March." I said, "Well, why are you paying so much money for it now?" And he said, "Um." Because it's going to have a rebuild, and he said um, his instructor didn't want to pay that. He wanted Sam to give him the, well, this is Sam's thing to me, give him the $25,000, $25, have it rebuilt, and then that would pay for that. And then the rest would be at the time of um, taking possession. possession. I said, oh, you know, I was a bit dubious because I said, oh, you know, that's a lot of money and if his business goes belly up, you've lost it because they won't give you the gyro if that happens, you know. And, of course, you know, Sam's answer to me was, it'll be right. Yeah. It'll be right, mate. It'll be right. So he did that. So the impression was that it was going to have a full rebuild, which $25,000 would have done. And that's where they strip the engine down. They do everything, you know. They mm. make it all like new again. Mm. So that's that was my impression. Anyway, so he goes and collects it in March and pays the other twenty five thousand. But further down the track, uh, of course, after he died and when we started doing a bit of um, investigating, that rebuild wasn't done. So you know that machine was still not in. It wasn't in. Um, a rebuilt condition. Oh my God! So you know. So then you know we were asking questions and we weren't getting answers. You know. Hmm. So it was a long process. Yeah. God. Workplace health and safety did a um, a report. They yeah. came because it was not like they classed it as an on-farm accident. Um, that was long. That was twelve months and. Um, it didn't answer anything. It was, and that report, those re- workplace health and safety reports go to the coroner, yep. and then their rec- workplace health and safety's recommendation to the coroner is that the coroner signs off on it. Anyway, when I found out and saw the report, um, I wasn't very happy because of, because it wasn't missing information. Yes, yeah, yeah, it wasn't wasn't detailed at all. Yeah, and because I'd probably. Um, been giving workplace health and safety a hard time in that 12 months, always wanting to know where they were up to and what they were doing and everything. 
they'd actually assigned me a person. So what I had to do was if I had a question, I had to ask the question to this person and then that person asked the question to Workplace Health and Safety. I wasn't allowed to make direct contact with Workplace Health and Safety. Anyway, when the report came out, this man rang me and he said to me, you're not, you're not happy, are you? I said, no. And that was, he said to me, well, you know, if you're not happy, you have a good read of the report and then make, maybe make, um, write to the coroner and suggest, or not suggest, but request an inquest, you know. Again, a long, long thing, but that's what we did. That's what I did. And that, that investigation was really good. Yeah, and that found that the instructor who'd sold the plane to Sam, is that, is yeah. that correct or no? He, that, though, that that work hadn't been done. Yeah. 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 It all came out in the inquest, and which so, it hadn't done in the Workplace Health and Safety Report. And so what happened to him, the instructor, at that point? Was well, there... there wouldn't have been anything really because um, um, inquests simply just look De- for the determine the, the cause of death, death. and yeah yeah and anything the queensland government brought a law in it a while ago that anything that came up at an inquest couldn't be used in another criminal case because all what they want to do at an inquest is they want to get to the truth mm. so you don't what they why they did that was they don't want people to come to an inquest and not tell the truth because they're concerned that they're going to be prosecuted the only the reason why this fellow was prosecuted was was because he lied at the inquest. That is the only way that you can get a prosecution. Oh, wow. So he, he perjured prove, himself. And how did they prove that? It was it was a charge of perjury because he stated something, I can't remember what it was, but he stated something at the inquest which was found to be not true. Wow. Um, so mm. Sam's accident's March 2011. When did the perjury case, when was that the decision handed down about that? I think it was 2016. Whoa. Five years later. Mm. Mm. And was he jailed? Yes. Yep. He was sentenced to 18 months and got three months. Yeah. Yeah. Because he pleaded guilty. Yep. But even that process was, you know, they they um, pulled that out, you know, made it go on and on and on. And then at the last minute they pleaded guilty, you know. We had... Um, um, four adjournments or something, adjourned, 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 and then got to the end, and then he just ple- he pleaded guilty, you know. So, yeah. but there was two two charges. One was perjury, and one was um, false evidence because he had a logbook um, that he he submitted to the coroner um, for the gyrocopter, which through coronial investigators found that to be a um, um, not a true and accurate record. Record. Um, so there was two charges, but obviously what they did was obviously for a, a plea of guilty, they dropped one charge, which you know happens all the time, doesn't it? Yeah. Okay. What the false evidence like that logbook? What was he using that for? Was that related to the rebuild? No, or? related to the gyrocopter. The, the gyrocopter that was sold to Sam trying to sort of show that it didn't have it didn't have the hours on it that that it, it would have had on it yeah yeah it was a it was a doctored document mm. yeah it was found to be um, um, and and see this is you know I have a, a 
it's amazing the difference in an investigation. It, it was amazing the difference in the in the, I guess, the workplace health and safety investigation as compared to what a coroner's a coronial investigation does. They just go, they just go deeper and deeper and deeper. And and that and I feel for people these days, I suppose because we've been through the process, but I feel for people who would like to have coronial inquests into their family's death and and you know they're not um, um, you know they they're not given one you know I mean they're expensive they're they're dear mm. they're costly yeah I'd hate to think even what if they put sands together how much it costs but um, they're just so much more in depth mm. than other sorts of investigations you know they just look for things. They look for those little things that that the rest of us sort of just don't see, you know. Which is kind of sad, a sad thing to say, isn't it? You would wish that any investigation would be, be, that, trying, would be that thorough. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So did you feel, I mean, that's going on for five years. Was that a distraction from the, the grief? Like in terms oh, of because yes. you were able yeah. to sort of channel energy into that um oh definitely yeah. yeah i i think in those times you get this um you had this steely resolve that you know you're going to see this through and you're going to get there and you're going to go all the way and you know and um and i can remember saying to krista at the very start i think it was after the when the workplace health and safety came out to examine the gyro the first it was in Sam died in the March. They were there in early April. And that's when we learned about what the motor did. Because when they came out to inspect it, that's what it did to them. You know, they were shocked because they were a bit the same way. They were coming out thinking, oh, you know, this kid's done something that's done something that's... Yeah, well, you hear a 21-year-old gyrocopter, you kind of think... Been out there doing something stupid. Yeah, it just makes a quick decision that just then, yeah... And no. they, yeah, and they were they were just dismayed and absolutely gobsmacked that it did what it did because they they did they tested it and it did exactly and it did it once and then it didn't do it the next time it was just so erratic you know and um, gosh they're lucky that they there wasn't another well, they, accident well they well they they certainly you know um, made sure that they they stripped it all virtually stripped the blades and everything all off it so that it wouldn't oh gotcha yeah, okay. Yeah. So um, intelligent people obviously don't send me to a workplace <laughs> incident <laughs> investigation, Carmel. That's right, but uh, no, they were very. They, were, they had the blades and everything well and truly off it to, to do this, you know. But that's and that's probably what set me off. Then was like, it was like a what? But I guess, I guess it was two things. I had that steeliness to because I'd said to Krista that day. I said, no matter. I remember saying to her, no matter how long this takes, you know, I am not stopping until we get to the bottom of this. Yeah. And I think most people who feel um, something like that say that. Yeah. You, know? you hear a lot of people who, who, you know, you watch TV, you see cases and people just hang in there and hang in there and see it right to the very end, you know. Just justice. You just want getting that result of this wasn't an accident like do you call it well i guess you still call it an accident but it's it is it is isn't it but it's a word i 
I never kind of, um, I never liked to use. Yeah. Because it, I suppose it, it was an accident, but it wasn't, accident doesn't like, I, I guess accident is a bad word. It doesn't kind of lay blame. Not blame, blame's not a word, a good word either, but I, I don't even know. Accident, I think, removes, takes responsibility from anyone. It seems like as if mm. there was a reason that it happened that was not an avoidable... I mean, but accidents are avoidable. I don't know. Yeah. I, but I know what you mean. It just doesn't I, feel... I just got this... After Sam died for a long time, I just got this thing of watching those air crash investigations. I, yeah, oh, my I, gosh, Carmel. Really? I, yeah, I think it was because... It was just because if you watch them, a lot of those start with just the simplest little thing at the start. You know, the, the tiniest little error causes the next level mm. to the next level to the next, you know, until the end is just a, ca- a catastrophe. Yep, just right? snowballs. Yeah, you know. Sometimes it might have been um, the wrong size bolt put into the mm. this vital part or, you know, I, I, the, the one that caught me most, I suppose, was the, the Concord, the, the last Concord. And, and what happened there was a piece of metal uh, fell on the runway from a plane that landed prior to the Concorde taking off. And they said it was probably only about as long as a ruler, but when it fell, instead of laying flat on the runway, it sat up on its end, this piece of metal. And then, of course, you know, the Concorde, just in its normal takeoff, just happened, one tyre happened to run over that piece of metal in that spot, you know, and then, of course, it either flicked it up or the tyre burst and... And punctured the fuel tank and the, you know, you just see, you know, and it's just, that's, that's the thing. It starts with just that first little bit of, and, and just, just the catastrophe that, that happened after that, right? And I, and I guess that's probably a little bit with Sam too, you know, you, you, it was just sort of the, you know, just a, something small starts it off, but then, you know, old mate didn't put, um, didn't, you know, it wasn't up to the, the machine wasn't up to um, up to standard, and and yeah, you know, it was just. Uh, it's yeah. I know it's funny. It's hard to explain, but I just see these things as yeah, starting out and then then having that kind of that snowball effect. Yeah. yeah. And did, so did you find sort of like comfort in watching no. these investigations, or no. you just it just more was like that yeah. rational of just seeing? Yep. It was just that that oh look at you know look. You know, look what's happened here, or you know, yeah. There's always there's always that catastrophe at the end, I guess. I know, but you can't those small things. How do you, you can't pick them up, can no. you? I mean, like we can't go through life. We wouldn't be able to walk outside if we would. We would have to test everything mm. to make sure to yeah. try and pick up the little grain of sand that's yeah. going to change the course it, it of your just, life. I know it was it was just something for me just it just the interest in how this one happened or cuz they usually show a, a, an investigate a, a plane that's had a you know certainly a, a catastrophic crash you know so yeah it's just yeah going right back to the very start and yeah. it could be something just so simple at the start but yet it had such a, a, a catastrophic end to it you know yeah so you said there were two things, like one, you had the steely resolve. Mm. What was the other focus? Oh, well, it was. it's just the grief, you know. It's just the, you know, it's just the, 
not just the knowing that you're never going to see that person again, you know. Mm. But the steely resolve was certainly the court was the was the legal side of it. You know, that was that was I was driven yeah. to get that through. You know, I wasn't I wasn't wasn't kind of ever going to take no for an answer, you know. No. Um, but yeah, the other side is just the loss of that you know, that person around you. And, and I mean, he's obviously you guys are, you know, the advantage of having a small town and a small community is that everyone knows you and like rallies together for you as well. So there's a comfort in knowing you've got that support. But then I'm sure the other side of that is that, you know, it must be must have been really difficult in those days because everyone's grieving, Sam, mm. and then you turn up and everyone's looking at you mm. like and worried about you yeah. and, and, you know, you just wanted to be by yourself. You said, yeah. you know, when he was yeah. in hospital. Was it the same when he died? Did you oh, want to be alone as well? Yeah, and I think I, I talk about, you know, you wear two faces. Yeah. You know, you wear the face that you walk down the street with and then you've got the face that you walk around home with, you know. That's what it was like. It was, And, and people are... And, and anyone will tell you this too about others because um, people are really great, but you kind of feel, and, and it's never something that's pointed out to you or anything, but you kind of feel um, they're just wanting you to, to be better. So in yourself then, you're out there trying to put out a, you know, an image or a picture that, hey, you know, I'm getting Don't better. Don't worry about me. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting yeah. better. I'll be better, you know. I know. I think it's. I find that really uh, annoying because I feel like we we get we don't want to be uncomfortable. Like mm. People hate the discomfort, and so what I've seen in my life is that when someone's going through something, there's um, almost like society has said there's an acceptable amount of time that we will give you to be, you know, remove you know removed from life or grieving or really sad. Yeah. But after that, we need you to buck up and get back on with it. And you, you, you feel that pressure then or no one wants to talk about it or doesn't know how to talk about mm. it or feels like, you know, there's no right time frame. No. Or no. right or wrong way to deal with things. I, 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 ten, I used to say I felt, like, I felt like someone walking around, you know, with this, this tattoo across my forehead that went, you know, dead some, you know. Um, but I don't now, but I can't, I can't point out to you kind of when that was, that felt removed. Yeah. I, I guess it is a, I guess it is a fading kind of a, you know, and, and see, at the start, the flying doctors were, yeah, I mean, they're still great too, but, you know, were so, so good. And so, so, and the, and the ones that who were on even probably for the next 12 months were still the ones who knew and everything. Now, um, they're none. They're not the same. And it's interesting. You kind of, when you go to the doctor now, you know, um, you don't. You can't. When I first used to go, it was always, you know, how are you and how are you going and 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 because they knew of sent. Now you don't kind of get that. You know, yeah. it's it's quite an interesting. Unless probably unless now they go back and look at your records, that probably is gone. You know, yeah. that that thing across your forehead that went. You know dead son is there relief in that or is it like a, a bit of both like a bit oh, sa- of sadness and a bit of oh, i think that's just the that's just the the public yeah thing of it you know 
because, um, um, yeah, that's just what when you're out about, you yeah. know. And and I mean, you certainly change. You you you. I guess you tend to brighten up again, and you know, it's ebbs and flows of life. And I think mm. grief is just uh, really intensifies those ebbs and flows. I think, um, and you know, I had that. I had that period of, of suicidal thoughts, and that was at kind of such a low period. And I think if you remain in that low period, yeah, you would be dangerous to yourself. It it was it was probably um, in the first eight weeks that that's probably you know that was probably the toughest. Um, because I think that you just were rejecting, or well, I don't know, if you, I'm, I have not experienced this, but did you feel like it was because you were rejecting like this new life? Like, I don't want to be part of this new life. I don't want to. I don't want my not life to be without Sam. Mm, I just wanted. I, I I just wanted to be with him. Yeah. No, and and that's I, I had. Well, you know, I have an empathy when I see something come up about. That's that was my thinking. I didn't didn't. I didn't care. I didn't think about any of the people living around me. That didn't matter. I just wanted to be, you know. And it was, it was a time. I was going to use a, you know, I was going to use a truck. You know, I was going to run into the, just drive into a truck, and then I'd be, be all over. I never thought. I just thought, oh well, it'll be right. That truck driver will get over it, and he'll just get on with it. You know, keep driving, get on with his life. You know, you don't. Now, when you look back, it's kind of like, you know, what, what effect. Would it have had on them, you know? What would effect would it have had on your own family, you know? But in that in that space, none of that, none no of rationality. That even, yeah, none no. of that comes, you know. So when you see a, a kind of a, a very sad situation, you know, on the news or something, I, I put myself in a in a place that a lot of people probably don't, and and uh, you know, you say, well, maybe maybe you know, they're thinking what I was thinking. Yeah. Um. I can. Mick's brother um, committed suicide back in the late nineties. After all our dramas, Eric or the no, younger brother. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I know for a long time afterwards, I kept thinking, you know, how could you do that to yourself? Yeah. How could you do that to yourself? You know, and I really believe, you know, your mind. I don't know if it's the chemical imbalance in your brain or not, but. It puts you in a place that you would not normally, it, you know, normally be in. Um, because I kept thinking, you know, how, how could somebody, you know, kind of knowing the end result, kind of do that to themselves? But you know, I, I was ready to do it, you know. So I, I do, I really do think we, we don't probably don't concentrate enough on what in in mental illness and what what effect, you know our brain and our chemical balance of the brain does. We're not taught to understand our brain, really, are we? I mean, mm. functioning, you know, emotions and that's taking off now. There's increased talk about it. But I still think it's really hard for people to know, can you even identify someone that's mm. going through that, you know, because, as you say, we can wear two faces. Yeah. So that's really difficult, isn't it, to mm. even know that someone is going through that or and then even helping, like depression from a minor depression to a severe depression, I know that it can be really hard for people to get out of that. And did you find that it was external help that helped you or internal or both? 
I don't know. I just, I remember the day so well. I didn't go through with it. I just, you know, but, and I, you know, I, I, it's still for months after, months and months and months I was, I was a mess, you know, yeah. just a mess. Um, but, you know, with Mick's brother, uh, I don't know a whole lot, but, you know, before he went out to dinner with friends, you know, and nobody kind of, nobody picked up. He had a couple of phone people, a couple of people phoned him that day, said they never thought anything was different, you know. So, you know, that's that's probably the hard part, I think, is that um, it's not always easy to to identify. You know? mm-hmm. um, it's just so scary thinking of all the people you love and just not wanting any of them to feel that way. Yeah. Or any human. I don't want anyone, you know, to feel that way. But then I don't even know how you help sometimes, I think. Mm. You know, I, I certainly had a lot of um, – I, I was um, having counselling, which, you, you know, which was important. And I don't – and I, but I, I don't think I got the best out of counselling. I think that that – yeah, and I think a lot of people can, you know, are resistant to therapy and I understand because I think that there's – Again, no right way, and mm. you know maybe it's that counts that particular counselor, but it might also just be the nature of it. I think it might not suit their, I yeah. guess, their personality, or their character. Yeah. I don't know. I think in the end, I just lifted myself out of it because I was, you know, I certainly got given medication, and I and I took it for a long time. But I kind of reached the point. It wasn't. It wasn't cheap either. It was quite an expensive one, and I kind of reached a point where I started to um, to wonder whether it was helping. Not. Yeah. Not. And so I just decided to stop and just see, just test the waters. Yeah. To see if you know if if I felt worse when I came off it or I didn't and I didn't seem to think I did so I didn't go back onto it onto yeah it. Um, but yeah I did um, I, I thought, kind of got to the point where I didn't think I was huh, I, I probably thought I wasn't feeling happy or you know good or oh you know because I was on this medication so I thought well let's just go off it and see if it if I go back into any dark places mm-hmm. or any, but I didn't seem to so I, I never took it again you know yeah I guess what I was trying to say before with it all is healing comes from awareness, right? Because we become aware of our thoughts. I would never say anything bad about counselling. I think um, external help is fantastic. Mm. But it's those people are there to help us know ourselves and yep. trust ourselves. Yep. And then you get that confidence and, you know, and then you can pull, your, you know, pull yourself up. But not that I want to say it like that because... But I don't know how else to word it. I, I think for me, with my with my counselling, it was virtually just the outpouring. Yeah. It was, that, it was that neutral person. You know, they weren't family. They weren't anyone you knew. They were a stranger. And look, honestly, I just got down there to woman and it just it was just pouring out of me. You know. So in that sense, it probably did do a lot of good for me. Yeah. You know? I can remember walking out of her office, and my eyes would be just raw. You know, because I'd been crying so much, you know. But it was, it was just to have someone, I think, and that's probably what, you know, what benefit counselling is. It's just that 
that neutral person who doesn't know you at the start, you know, and you just you just pour it all out onto this person, you know. I know, and then and they've got the capacity to then validate those feelings to yep. to give them safety, so that you know if you because we all run the risk of if we outpour our emotions to some another human, if what if they shut me down? What if they reject or yep. shame me or are you know embarrassed about my emotions or something? Mm. We can't. You're already in such a fragile place. You can't take on that, can yep. you? You know. No, and and. That's right, and because she was that neutral person, you know, she didn't pat you on the back and say, oh, you know, oh, poor dear, poor dear, like, you know, your family might or, you know, or good friends or whatever. She just kind of, she just let me just let it all come out and, and you know, even to the point of, you know, questioning my my feelings and, you know, that that sort of thing rather than that, that softening of, of, her, of an approach, you know. You know, if you have a bit of a... A bit of a you know episode with a family. The first thing you want to do is just pull yourself back together, and I'll be right. I'll be right. I'll be right. right you yeah. know. Whereas with counselling, they don't expect you to do that. No, no. So, yeah. So that I'm sure it helped, and she was the lady that encouraged me to write. So yeah. So tell us about that decision. Like, was it something that she said explicitly? Well, I think it was in the sense that I couldn't stay down there very long, and she sort of said to me, you know. You really need a lot more sessions than what we've had now, you know. Blah, and um, and then she sort of said, "Well, you know, if you find that hard, try and write down, try and write it down, you know." And that's how it all sort of came about, you know. So that's what I did. And at the time, Mick and I weren't living together. He was out at Farnham, and I was in here by then. And um, I I liked that in the sense that I could pull my laptop out at ten or eleven o'clock at night when I couldn't sleep. And I could just sit in, you know, sit in my bed, and I could just, you know, type for hours without anyone saying, you know, don't you think it's time to go to bed? Don't you think you better go to sleep? You know, some mornings I wouldn't stop till one or two or three in the morning, but I didn't have to worry about getting up in the next morning if I didn't want to. That's or, right. You know, so, um, was it just about how you were feeling, or was it that venting and that outpouring, or was it about Sam's life? Yeah, no, it was a re, it was re. Remember, I, I did. I did write as I probably wrote the book in a way. Um, I wanted to record. Yeah, it was a record of those days. You know, um, after his accident, those weeks and months after he died. You know, it certainly was. Yeah. Um, I, I had a terrible yearning of not wanting to forget. Yeah. You know, um, and that that's probably why. It's written the way it is, you know. I was, I was probably when we were in Brisbane. Um, a lot of people um, wanted to know how Sam was. So what I, I'd done was, um, I guess, the teacher part of me in me. I used to write a daily update, and then I could just send it to everybody who wanted to. You know, if they gave me their email address, I just added it. And so, at least my thinking then was to them was that everybody's getting the same, same information. Yeah. yeah, you know. So um, I still had all those as a. They kind of helped me remember what happened on the Monday or on the Tuesday or on the Wednesday. Or of course, those like daily that. updates. Yeah. Yeah. Because time would have just felt like one long day, really. Oh, that's right. It was just from the moment we could enter his the ICU to the moment we had to kind of leave. You know. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of it was good to have 
and it was probably good to start writing when I did, so those mem- so they were still very vivid to me. Yeah. Those, all those different things that um, that happened in that time. I can just imagine too that it wouldn't have just been the days after, but also the days before you like that yearning to not to to remember, you know, not forget anything. You know, you just be desperate to remember every yeah, moment that you've ever it. had with Sam. You know, you know, and it was good to. Um, you know, then later, I I guess I added all the little little stories and things. You know, yeah, they were they were kind of important to put in there too, because you know, he, I guess he was, you know, he was a bit of a character. Yeah, sounds <laughs> it. You've obviously got copies here that I can look. I'm going to give you one. I want to give you I, one. Maybe, I don't please. want. No, no, please let me buy one. Please let me buy one. Because <laughs> I I planned on giving you one here today. No, I totally get. I'm please, I, to I, the, I want to I want to support the book. So I'm getting to the point where I'm happy just to. Give them away now. <laughs> I know, but this is no. But, so in the decision actually to self-publish, how did that come about? Okay, well, I guess I had, well, I had at different times, I'd written, I'd written so much. I got to the point of Sam's death and I was just completely and utterly drained. I was just, com- you know, and I stopped for a while because I guess my thinking after that was, after I wrote that, I felt I'd written and then I kind of didn't think, I really did not think I could put into words my, my, what I felt after he died. I just didn't think there was words, you know. To, I, I just didn't think I could describe it, you know. Yeah. Um, anyway, I must have, I waited a while and then I must have picked up again and started writing. And um, then I probably got about, had about three quarters of what I thought was done. And we had a lady coming to Eula, it was during the drought, and she was coming to do a writer's, um, it was for mental health and it was a writer's day. What was her name? Stephanie. Shout out to Stephanie. <laughs> anyway, she came and she did the day and I took what I had with me thinking, oh, this lady will read this and she'll tell me that it's magnificent, you know. Anyway, um, we were there and different there was all there were different women and she's saying hey, have any of you written anything and you know going around the group and I said yeah I have and she said how much have you written and I said oh I think I'm about up to about 90,000 words and <laughs> <laughs> anyway um oh so and I had it there and I thought I said to her would you just read this but she was on a you know she was there for a thing and she kind of said to me she read a tiny little paragraph maybe and she said look I, I can't really I'm not really here you know for anyway so she said, all I can do is just encourage you to keep going. If you think you're three quarters of the way through, you know. Never mind. We're retracting. Shout out to Stephanie. Yeah. <laughs> and then she said to me, and I said, well, what, what do you do? What do you do after you think you've finished? And she said, oh, it's probably a good idea to have a manuscript assessor do it for you, you know, sort of thing. Oh, radio. So that gave me the incentive to finish what I thought, you know. And I had to also wait because at that time um, the court case was Go on and on, you know. The, we, we finished the inquest. Um, the, the the investigations that led to the charges had been done, but but the court, the district court case was being dragged out. So I kind of had to wait for a conclusion there. And um, anyway, I had this manuscript finished. And it was four hundred and something pages, four hundred and twenty-six wow. pages. Anyway, um, I got back on to Stephanie Dale because she'd given me her details, and I said. I'm finished. What? Do, who do I? She said, "I've got this lovely lady that um, would, you know, might be able to do it for you." 
Um, here's her details. She is busy, so you know. So anyway, I emailed this lady, and you could. She was. She was. And she came back to me, and you could just tell. I'm sure she thought, "Oh, here's another one. Here's another one who thinks she's got this." <laughs> you know? Yeah. Oh, I read these all the time, kind of. So. She said to me, she came back to me and she said, yes, I'll do it for you. And she told me her fee, because there's always a fee. And she said to me, now, these are my rules. So she had rules about, you send me your manuscript, but you don't get back in touch with me again. I'll get back in touch with you. That's like, Just so, we want to know. Yeah. What do you reckon? What do you reckon? <laughs> yeah. So she said, you don't get back in touch with me. I'll get in touch with you. Um, I'm busy for the next three weeks, something or other. I wouldn't be able to look at it before that. Um sort of thing um, and after that it takes me about five or six weeks before I complete a little report for you and all this yeah okay. you're like I'm used to things getting dragged yeah, out that's fine that's fine you know <laughs> no hurry sort of thing anyway um, I sent it through to her and um, next morning I think it was was the phone and she rang me and I thought oh this is not what you um and she said to me she just said to me um, Carmel I'm just ringing. I know I said <laughs> no contact, blah, blah. But she said, I just have to tell you, I've just read some part of the book, around, maybe around, that, around Sam's death, the way that you've written. She said, oh, I'm just gobsmacked. She said, I can't read any more now because I've got this other project, but, you know, I will get on to it and blah, 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 blah. So that was all, you know, I thought, oh, that's a good, you know, pat on the back. Anyway, she comes back to me. And um, she saw the potential, but she also saw that it wasn't. It was a long way from being anything. as any piece of writing yeah. is. Yep, when it's first done. Because I'm, I was one of these people who thought, look, you just write it all down, you send it off to the publisher. They've got somebody there who tidies it all up for you, and you know, you just reap the benefits. I thought that's you know. right. She said. Um, what do you want to do with this story? And I said, well, I don't really know. And she said, um, do you want to, do you want to try and publish it? And I said, I don't know. And she said, well, if you do, there's a bit of tidying, you know, it's quite a bit of tidying up to do. I said, all right. So she said to me, um, she picked out three, not, not, nothing to do with Sam's death, but three other stories in the book. She said to me, I want you to take that story and I want you to write it in 800 words. She gave me a deadline and said, have it to me by the end of the week if you want me to want to do something. So I did. I had a go at it and got it down to pretty close to 800 words. Then she took that back again and she tidied that up again, you know, and she showed me kind of really how to do it. So she took three stories. And on the third one, you've got the gist of it now, she said, you know, she said, so what I want you to do, she said, if you're interested, she said, if you really want to do this, she said to me, take all those little stories that you've written about Sam and she said, and condense them. Because she said to me it was too big. Yeah, just tighten them. Yeah. Yep. And she said, your whole book's too much. So I presume I would just have to cut bits out, cut all these stories out. Mm. No, she said, no, 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 no. You just make the stories better. So I'd send it to her as a manuscript just as a whole big thing. Just a big long thing. So I, the first thing I did was cut them into chapters, mm. and that made it easier. And I used to just work on a chapter. And took me. She said to me, "It'll take you a while." It took me three or four months. And I was getting to the stage where I kind of was reading it and reading it, and I couldn't remember 
what I'd if I'd read that somewhere else or whether I, you know. Yeah, what's real, yeah. uh, what's in my mind, yeah. Uh, you know, and I thought, have I already read that back at the front or is it? <laughs> anyway, I got back in touch with her and said, I think I've done as much as I can do. And I said, would you have another read? And she said to me, yes. And again, it cost, you know, it cost me money again this time because not as much, but she's very, she was very generous at the time. She wanted me to get a publisher to take it because she thought it would get a better, be more widely. It would be marketing. Well, they'd do the marketing of it. Yeah. Anyway, so I tried and tried and I did get Hatchets, Hatchets, yep. publishers. I had a lovely lady there. She picked it up and she loved it. Had me change a few things just to, um, and she was taking it to their meeting where they all sit, the finances, the publishers, the print, you know, all this. And she was really keen, but it fell over there at the meeting because she came back to me and she said she was very sorry that it wouldn't, they wouldn't pick it up. I was an unknown, you know. An influencer, yeah. Yeah. I wasn't a recognised author. I had no other... No, no other pieces of writing I'd ever done. Yeah, they had a whole list of, you know, reasons why they they wouldn't take it on. So that left us in a bit of a, a bit of a hole. And then, we were back in that real long drought. Yeah. I wasn't working, no income. I um, found out what I could from a lady in Charleville about putting it together myself. You know, I wanted her to do it, but she wasn't keen. She said, oh, you're smart enough to, you know, you're clever enough to do it. So there's a publishing house in Charleville? No, no, I just did it. I did it through a, just a... Um, a program? Yeah, I, I downloaded a, a, a book program and I put it, did it there. And when you get to the end of that program, it just, it virtually, you just click and it sends it off to a... Printer? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and that's where it, so, and as a self-publisher, you mm. take on the cost, obviously, of, yeah. of printing the books yeah. and then you just oh, add a bit of a margin it, yeah. or something to sell yeah. it on. Yeah. yeah. So. And I see that you were donating in January this yeah, year, was it? For... I did. I've done a couple. I did last year in, uh, 20, in January 2020, I think it was, I did a, I did a split. I did a 10% to um, rural aid and a 10% to a fire because that was in the bushfires. Of course. Fire. Yeah, this year I did another rural aid one too, another ten percent in in the January. Yeah, it's amazing, yeah. so generous. Yeah. Can you just, as a self publisher as well, did you just do a, a, a smaller run of books and then you can print more? Yeah, yeah. As I needed? just got I just got a one copy. Yep, and, and I didn't it one had, copy. Well, I did. Well, that was your proof one. Oh yes, okay, no, okay, okay. No, no need for an ISBN or anything when you yeah, do that. Yeah. So I had yeah, I got that one. Checked it all out. Even I can still even find mistakes here and there in this one. But you know, and then when when you're kind of ready, then you um, you apply for your ISBN or whatever, and then you get as many you know orders as you want or whatever. So when was the first edition published? Um, I think I brought it out in time for um, it must have been 2018, in time for Sam's birthday. When's his birthday? Uh, October. Yep. I sold it all through nineteen, and I didn't sell a lot. It was all family, friends, you know, whoever could you could uh, through nineteen. And then I found that the buy from the bush site. Oh yes, yeah, just amazing. It just it just exploded. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it did. That was at the end of nineteen, 
And that was an amazing sight because up until then, you know, my book had gone to friends, family, obviously, but that gave me that why. I, I had orders from Western Australia, Tasmania, every state, and I wouldn't have got that if I didn't have a site to be able to sell through like that one. Yeah. And then they I just amazing. think that um, would be such a lovely feeling to knowing that Sam's stories, not just in the hands of family and friends that knew him, but also in people that didn't know yeah. him. Yeah, and, and so many, so many comments like that I get. That's incredible. Yeah. I think I've just got two more questions, and I'll start with the harder one first. When Sam was in hospital and you were in the stage of, you know, denial, at what point did you realise that that Sam might not make it? Oh, I think on the Tuesday morning this phone rang and it was a uh, um, neurosurgeon and um, and she said to me, um, Mrs Beresford, um, Sam's um, brain readings have been very erratic all night. I'm sorry to tell you this, but she said we're going to have to take him back into surgery, you know. And she said to me, her words were, if we don't do this now, he will die. And I just said to her, well, you go and you do whatever you have to do, you know. So I think I had probably come to the conclusion that things were pretty bad after they had to take... Because they'd removed the back of his skull, so he had no skull there. But because his brain continued to swell, they had to remove... So. He virtually had no bone left. In the, you know. And I, I think that's when I decided that no one no. No, no one could survive that kind of trauma. Yeah. Um, and I certainly probably, I, I think I came to that conclusion a lot, a lot sooner than Mick did, you know. Yeah. I certainly got angry with Mick over the time, you know, and, and I'm saying to him, you know, about how bad he is and Mick saying to me, we will take him home, you know. Yeah. We will get him home. We will take him home. And I and my, I didn't say it out loud, but my thing was in a box. Yeah. I just, I think I'd probably come to the conclusion that um, you, couldn't, you couldn't suffer that sort of massive injury and then one day walk out of hospital and go, oh, hi, you know, I'm good. Um. As, as always, I guess, Mick was the positive, right? Yeah. yeah. And then it's hard too because people grieve so differently as well. Mm. So then that would have been a challenge. Um, my other question was you said that it was really hard to write about Sam's death, like you kept putting that up. How did you eventually? I started, but I remember, I remember editing that section many, many, many times. Yeah. yeah. That was my hardest thing. I wanted people to know. Sometimes they show you when they talk about grief and that they talk about being in a dark tunnel and you see the tiny little speck of light and, you know, as you walk towards the light. I never saw that light. Yeah. I never saw that light. Yeah. I, I saw the tunnel, but I never saw a light, you know. So, and that was what I wanted to sort of say to people, you know, I don't see a light. I don't see a ladder. I, I'm just... And now do you see, I think, grief morphs or no? I think... I suppose it's what makes humans humans, isn't it? You yeah. Know? You know, you never use the term getting over it. Mm-mm. But I suppose... Um, 
um, you just etch out a life that's, you know, it, it's a, my life is certainly the poorer for it. But, you know, what, what do you do? <laughs> you can't change if it. You, if you don't do this, you might, you know, you're not here kind of thing, you know. So I suppose you get to the point where you have to tell yourself that you don't have a choice, you, you know, you're going to live till one day somewhere in the future, you know. Bring your own light to the tunnel or to yeah. the hole and build. It, it must have happened, but you certainly don't put your finger on it and say, oh, that's when it happened or, you know. No. I, I suppose it's a bit like I, I remember just crying and crying and crying and crying for days and weeks and months. Um, and, and I used to think, I didn't think the human body would even produce as much tears, you know. Yeah. You feel like you literally, and I'm not being, you literally could just fill buckets. Yeah. And then, you know, you get to the point where perhaps, you know, one day instead of crying all day, you might cry most of the day or, you know, so I suppose it comes to that point. And, you know, now you go through days where you don't cry at all, but then something will just... Yeah. trigger it yeah. you know I was sitting at the computer the other day and I don't even know can't even tell you but it might not have even been about Sam even or anything but I just stopped there and I just bawled you know and then I just said to myself that's enough you know I think that tears are so healing though like I mean they're exhausting like having a big cry Oof. Mm. but I think that it's also I'd much rather people cry and get, you know, and, and to be able to be here and, and, like, have a cry rather than tell you, oh, please, Carmel, <laughs> wipe the tear ducts, you know? like Yeah. Oh. The other day at um, in Melbourne, that's probably the first time I've spoken, but I was pretty steely. I was telling myself to be pretty steely. That's probably the first time I've spoken about Sam and being able to, be dry-eyed yeah it was a lovely setting and everything and and i wanted to people to sort of you know to feel um you know feel for sam you know without me gushing you know buckets of tears or whatever but but even mick and i don't have a lot of conversations about sam it's too hard yep i hope that that changes uh, I think it's because um, it is too hard. Yeah, yeah, of course. Because look, just talking to you, oh. and so imagine what I'd be like, you know, yeah. talking to my husband about our son. You yeah, know. it is sad because I mean he left such a um, a huge impression on our lives. Yeah, of course he did. Oh, I'm just so <laughs> glad that I'm so glad that you had Sam because we've met. I. Yeah, and I mean, I've I've been in contact with so many lovely people because of obviously my book, and it's nice to read a comment when someone says, you know, loved your story, thought I was on the same journey with you, you know. Yeah, I know. I think that's the thing. We we all feel it, but we're all very very good at uh, having the one face that we see each other on the street with, yeah, and. Uh, everyone's got something going on but it's oh look and you know i i i'm certainly a i i like to think i might be a better person even than i was before because you you get that empathy you know you read so many things you know and you think it's not nice to comment because you just don't know what 
someone's doing or feeling or, you know, you know. That's right. When earlier you had said um, straight after Sam's accident that you just wanted to be by yourself and you said that that's dangerous. I mean, obviously then we went to speak about the the thoughts that you were having. Um, We think we can do things alone, don't we? Yeah. Well, it's just Krista and Mick had gone. They'd left. And um, I just felt I needed I needed to be at home. I just have to be at home. But, yeah, too many, um, too many things come into play in your head, you know. And um, I, you'll read it in my book, but I, I talk about being outside and just, I just screamed and screamed and screamed. I just had this. I had something coming out of my mm. throat that I didn't even know existed. Yeah. I talk about it. I, I think the word I used was primal. Yeah. It was a sound that I had never made or heard myself before in my whole, and I just stood outside and I just, you know, and I I say in the book I had we had two old, two dogs at the time, lovely, nice, not house dogs, work dogs, but hung around the house. And my... The sound coming out of me was so terrible that I terrified them, you know. It was just, yeah. But imagine keeping that trapped in. Imagine what that must have, would have done to you if you hadn't. But I think if, if someone else had been there, yeah, you, you probably you wouldn't. wouldn't have. Yeah. You know, you just wouldn't. I don't think you'd have got to that, that point. Mm, right. You know? Yeah, that yeah. was probably what I meant in the sense that if you had somebody, you know, in company with you, not so much telling you it'll be fine or it'll be, but just having someone else there. Because I was on my own, I just, yeah, I just went out there and just, yeah, had let out this almighty sound that, yeah, was horrible. It was terrible. And that's why I think even if you don't, even if that person doesn't say anything to you, I think just having a presence there, mm-hmm. you know, letting you do what you think you need to do, but just being a presence there would have is probably um, yeah. I think I, I'd su- suggest to people that they just not be alone. You know? Yeah, we think we know ourselves so well, don't we? And oh then we, well, I had my yeah. reasons. We yeah. had, we had animals course. to feed, and oh. you know all those jobs, and of you know, and of course, course it's also yeah. It all makes perfect sense. And I mean, I know when I'm having a bad day, I'm like, I just want to be alone. But then if some if I'm not. You do. You feel so much. We're human beings. We're, we're tribal creatures. We're meant to, you know, have that connection. And even mm. as you say, even if it's complete silence, there's such comfort in knowing that there's someone else there. Mm. I think that's what it would have been. I think. You yeah. Know? Um, but as you say, it, look, it probably. I don't. I wouldn't say. I can't agree that it probably did me the world of good letting it out. I don't. You know, it. It was just. I. I it just happened. It just came out, you know. Just, but little things I can remember in that time, and you'll read it in the book. But I took off a little spring. I'd carefully taken off to get this wire off, and I had to get this piece of spring back in the hole. And I was trying and trying. Of course, I wasn't getting. And I was the tears. And, and then I just said, I said, you know, if you were here, Sam, I wouldn't be doing this. You know, I wouldn't have to do this. You know, Get in here and get this spring back where it's supposed to go. You know what? Next time, it went in exactly where it was supposed <laughs> to go. You know, and that that set me off again too. You know, yeah. 
anything like that. Even now, I'll be I'll do something and I'll just be having a hard time doing it, and I'll just say, "Come on, Sam, fix this for me." <laughs> you know. Yeah. And people, I think everybody kind of. I mean, I don't think I'm alone. No way. way. I I always see things and I think, oh, I'm on the right track. I'm on the right track. Yeah. So, um, oh, well, Carmel, this has just been so beautiful. (laughs) Such an unexpected visit. But thank you so much for letting me into your house and for sharing your story. Oh, thank you, Megan. Once again, thank you, Carmel, for sharing your story. And thank you for listening to this extended episode. I'll be back next week with another episode of How Do You Decide? Until then, make good choices.